Welcome to this month's special series, Insights in Future Medicine, on ReachMD XM157. You're faced with a patient with cystic fibrosis. What is the optimum treatment? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the voice of the medical professional. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Rick Moss. Dr. Moss is a professor of pediatrics at the Stanford University Medical Center in Stanford, California. He's the chief of the Division of Pulmonology and Allergy Immunology and director of the Stanford Cystic Fibrosis Center. Today we are discussing current and future treatments for cystic fibrosis. Welcome, Rick, and thanks for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for having me on. Before we get into a discussion of treatment, could you give us a capsule summary of the genetic defect in cystic fibrosis? I know there's a lot of exciting research going on there. Sure. The CF gene was uh, discovered in 1989 through a process called positional cloning, and it was a real triumph of science of the 80s. It's located on chromosome 7, and the CF gene codes for a protein which has been named CFTR for cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator. So that's quite a mouthful, and most people will just say CFTR. Yeah, I would get that one wrong on an exam. <laughs> CFTR is expressed primarily in epithelial tissues. And in the epithelial organs, uh, tissues lining organs like the lung and the pancreas, uh, CFTR functions to regulate the movement of salt and water in and out of the cell. So when CFTR is defective, one of the main things that occurs is an abnormality of ion transport and salt and water balance. That results in different manifestations in different organs, but uh, basically can be thought of as clogging things up. So CF is primarily a disease of reduced clearance of secretions in luminal tubes like the airways and the pancreatic ducts, also the biliary ducts and other organs. So this results in abnormal organ function and then the clinical manifestations of the disease. Is this a single mutation or are there variations of the gene mutation? The CF gene, it's a fairly big protein. There are 1,580 amino acids. And over 1,500 different mutations have now been described within this single gene. So there are many, many different uh, mutations. However, there's one mutation that accounts for about two-thirds of all the uh, mutated alleles in CF, and that's called delta F508, which means that at position 508 in the amino acid sequence, a phenylalanine has been deleted as a result of a single nucleotide change. And that one mutation accounts for about half of all patients in CF who get one copy of this mutation from each parent. CF is inherited as an autosomal recessive, so you have to have a mutated allele from each parent in order to manifest the disease. Has genetic testing reached the level that it makes screening cost-effective for cystic fibrosis? Yes, although there's not universal population screening because not that many people are affected. Uh, we mentioned that about 30,000 patients in the United States. It's now very widely offered by obstetricians to women during pregnancy. One can uh, screen through chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis. It's available in many states, now pushing 40 states as a newborn screen where genetic testing is often combined with an initial screen for a pancreatic enzyme, a change that can be found in the heel blood stick that's done on newborns. And then it's available uh, generally for a suspected clinical diagnosis. Genetic testing is, depending on the ethnic population, upwards of 90 to 95% accurate. Before we get into treatment, what's the gold standard for diagnosis these days? Well, the gold standard remains the sweat test, which was developed in the mid-1950s. And in this a particular test, a small electrical current is used to drive in 
uh, pilocarpine to stimulate maximal sweat gland secretion. And then the sweat is collected on a gauze, which is weighed so you know how much volume of sweat you get. And then the salt content of that is tested. And in CF, characteristically, there's an elevation of chloride, also sodium, in the sweat. That has been and remains the gold standard. But nowadays, genetic testing is very widely used. And some people are also using direct testing of the physiology by doing a test called the nasal potential difference measurement, which looks at the transport properties across the nasal mucosa. Can you be sweat test normal or negative and still have cystic fibrosis? Yes, you can. Although it's relatively rare, there are certain mild CF mutations which affect the sweat content less than other uh, organs, and therefore one may still have uh, cystic fibrosis despite a sweat test in the normal range. We've long recognized that there's a gray zone in the sweat test between 40 and 60 milliequivalents uh, per liter of chloride. Generally, people have taken 60 as the cutoff. It's much lower than that in newborns and neonates, but in general, it's at 60. And there are patients with CF that have values below 60. Wow, so that's really an important message. If you suspect something clinically, you've got to pursue it, I think. In most cases, such patients are referred to the CF center, and more extensive testing will be undertaken, yes. Now, I understand that by the end of this decade, over 50% of patients with cystic fibrosis will be older than 18 years of age. I mean, that's a credible success. What's resulted in that, and what's the current standard of care? Yeah, I think it really is an amazing statistic, and I think there are a number of answers to your question. Probably the most important is the universal adaptation of a care program that goes all the way back to the early 1960s that was first uh, instituted by a physician named Leroy Matthews in Cleveland, Ohio. And he emphasized three things which still remain very true. The first is to have the patient on some form of regular airway clearance. And airway clearance therapies today involve not only manual chest physiotherapy, but a variety of devices which patients can use independently. A very popular one is the so-called VEST, which is an oscillating device worn around the chest that simulates chest physiotherapy. So that's the first pillar of treatment. Before we get into the additional pillars of treatment, I'd like to pause for a moment to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Rick Moss, Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Stanford University. We're discussing current and future treatments of cystic fibrosis. So we've got one down and two to go, or there more than that? Well, at least two. The other two that are really classic involve the use of nutritional interventions because patients with pancreatic insufficiency, and we should mention that over 90% of all patients have pancreatic insufficiency. So it's not universal, but the overwhelming majority do. They require pancreatic enzyme extracts, fat-soluble vitamins, and also, in most cases, some form of caloric supplementation. So an adequate nutritional intervention has been shown not only to replete patients and prevent failure to thrive and malnutrition, but actually is a very powerful prognostic feature of the course of the lung disease. The better nutritional status you have, the better your prognosis is and the less progression of lung disease. There's a very clear connection between those two things. So that's the second pillar. And then the third one is really effective treatment of the pulmonary infections that occur as a result of the plugging of airways with these dehydrated secretions that are characteristic of CF lung disease. There's a restricted spectrum of bacteria that we focus on, including Staph aureus and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, some others that can be effectively treated by antibiotics, although Pseudomonas is a difficult organism to treat. Uh, we now have the ability to treat it very effectively with inhaled antibiotics. So the use of antibiotics 
sort of stands traditional medicine, at least traditional pediatric medicine, on its head. We use antibiotics extremely liberally in CF, and of course, pediatricians are always being told to be more careful in the use of antibiotics for respiratory infections. But in the setting of CF, antibiotics are very important. So those are the three pillars. And then I would mention two other things that have become more important in recent years and I think are contributing to the increased survival and quality of life we're seeing. One is mucolytic therapy. So there are now ways to make that mucus less viscous and more mobile. And those include the use of a recombinant uh, DNA, or pulmozyme, and hypertonic saline, both of which are inhalational drugs that partially make the mucus more normal in, in its uh, transport characteristics. Going back to the antibiotics, are they nebulized? Are they oral? Both? Antibiotics in CF include parenteral, oral, and inhaled, and they each have their place in, during different phases or aspects of the disease. When patients have uh, clinical acute episodes of respiratory infection, most commonly they're treated with IV antibiotics, often in the hospital. If they have a milder form of what we call an exacerbation or deterioration, they may get oral antibiotic, usually a quinolone or an anti-staphylococcal oral agent. And for chronic treatment of patients with chronic pseudomonas, many of them are on a regular schedule of inhaled antibiotics, usually inhaled tobramycin or toby. But there are others now that are available. Unfortunately, with even with all this treatment, there is progressive loss of lung function. Where does lung transplantation come into play? Well, patients do progress, and particularly when they get to a level of lung function that really depletes their pulmonary reserve, then we start thinking about lung transplant, and often their quality of life will be affected at that level. Most people look at an SEZ1, forced expiratory volume in one second, which is a fairly easy spirometric measure of less than 30% predicted consistently as an indication for at least thinking about lung transplant because we know from epidemiologic studies that that's a marker of poor prognosis. Very exciting. Researchers that were able to take epithelial cells and convert them into stem cells. You mentioned the CFTR gene located primarily in epithelial tissues. Is this going to, you know, in your imagination, lead to any breakthroughs? I expect that it will. It may take some time. There has been work in uh, stem cell lung biology using bone marrow cells primarily, but certainly one can imagine other sources, such as uh, today's very exciting reports, you can get stem cells to home to the lungs, and it is possible to regenerate lung tissue, although I would say we're in the earlier stages of that kind of research now. But many people have shifted their attention somewhat from gene therapy to stem cell therapy as a possible ultimate cure for cystic fibrosis. But it's not going to happen tomorrow. This is saying the future is now. Um, <laughs> what are we seeing now that you know you didn't know about a year ago in terms of treatment? It's a very exciting time in CF because there are things that are happening at virtually every level of uh, intervention that one can imagine, uh, starting with gene and stem cell research, going into the actual cell biology. So we now have several compounds in clinical trials that work directly on the mutated forms of CFTR to partially or fully correct the problem. And this is uh, doable now in vitro. And we're at the stage where we're trying some of these compounds in clinical trials. So it's conceivable that one or more of these could be on the market within a few years, actually, and that could actually serve as a control for the disease. These are often focused on particular types of mutations. For example, Delta F508 is uh, responsible for about two-thirds of all CF mutations, and about half of all patients are homozygous for this mutation. There are drugs that are lead candidates for clinical development that can actually get into the cell and partially correct the Delta F508 defect, which is a folding defect that causes this particular mutated protein to be discarded by the cell 
quality control mechanism. So in the presence of the drugs that are being tested, uh, the Delta 508 protein is actually not thrown away, but is placed in its proper place on the cell membrane and does show some function. So it's conceivable that a drug that does this could control the disease in the majority of patients with CF. Rick, our time has just flown by, and I'd like to thank you so much for being our guest. And we've been discussing the current and future treatments for cystic fibrosis. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and take advantage of our new on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, discusses insights in future medicine.